death touches our lives in some way or, or when the world mocks, as it often does, the, the doctrine of resurrection, we, we can struggle ourselves with doubts. When we struggle with bodily suffering, we can lose sight of the resurrection that awaits us. Or when life, when life is going well, even, we can be tempted, we, even as Christians, to live as if this world, uh, as if the bodies that we have now is all there really is. Or we can minimize, we can minimize the importance of the resurrection of believers by thinking of it as less spiritual. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul stresses the importance and the relevance of the doctrine of the resurrection of believers as a most essential, motivating, and God-glorifying gospel truth. This evening, our, our focus is especially on verses 35 to 49. I believe, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, uh, Dr. Beakey will be here and he will be preaching on this chapter as well, different parts of it. But our focus this evening will be verses 35 to to 49, where Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes the believer's resurrected body as a glorious work of God in Christ. That's really, if you want to have a a summary of of the message, Lord willing, this this evening, it's, it's this. The believer's resurrected body is a glorious work of God in Christ. And so this sermon will be, will be following this passage and quite closely. And so I, I would invite you and encourage you to have your Bibles open as we work through these verses together. And we'll work through them under the theme, The Body That Shall Be. First, we'll consider the believer's resurrected body pictured in God's creation. And secondly, con- contrasted to our present experience. And thirdly, assured through union with Christ. So first, the the believer's resurrected body is pictured in God's creation. Maybe, children, you noticed in verses 35 to 41, Paul is speaking a lot about God's creation there, isn't he? He speaks about seeds and and plants and and beasts and, and birds and people and fish. He speaks about earthly bodies and celestial or heavenly bodies. He speaks about the sun and the moon and the stars. And then in the beginning of verse 42, he says this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. He's using creation to show us something about the the, the believer's resurrected body. To help us understand and believe the reality and glory of that body that shall be. You see, one of the problems in Corinth, according to verse 12, which we read, is that some were denying this doctrine. Many of the pagans and and even apparently some in the church, they scoffed at the idea of a resurrected body. Many of them believed that the body was, was bad and the soul was good. So to them, death was a good thing. It freed the soul from the body. And so they rejected this idea, this idea of resurrection. But Paul describes these people, he he challenges them, doesn't he? And and in verse 34, he describes these people as those who have not the knowledge of God. And it is one of those people, those people who deny the, the resurrection, that Paul anticipates asking these questions in verse 35. But some man, one of these 
people who have not the knowledge of God will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? In the context, these are not, these are not honest questions, but they are stubborn objections rooted in unbelief. And that's why, that's why, congregation, in verse 36, Paul speaks of, of this kind of person. He addresses this person as a fool. Thou fool, he says, because he's speaking to a skeptic. But perhaps, perhaps you have asked these questions too. Not, not in skepticism, not in stubborn unbelief, but, but really sincerely wanting to know. You see, there's, there's something that seems so final about death. Even when we have the comfort that the souls of our loved ones have gone to be with Christ. You, you know this, don't you? If you've ever watched a loved one die, you know this. The breathing slows. And then there's the last final breath and, and then there's nothing. The body is, is there, but, but the life is gone. It's just an empty shell. And then, after a couple of days, that, that shell, that, that body is, is buried. The coffin is, is lowered into the ground and, and it's covered over. The body decays and eventually it crumbles into dust. And the question comes, how? How are the dead raised up? With what body shall they come? But that's why we need to keep reading. Because Paul doesn't just dismiss the question, even though it comes from a skeptic in his, in his context. He, he answers the question by pointing to creation. Look at verse 36 again. That which thou sowest, he says, is not quickened, except it die. Children, I wonder if you've ever planted a, a seed, maybe at school or, or at home. What, what must happen to that seed for, for it to become a plant? Can it stay a seed? It can't stay a seed, can it? It has to, it has to die, as it were. If, if you try looking for the seed, once the plant has grown big and strong, you won't find it. The point is that the seed's death doesn't impede life. It impels it. God uses death to give life. God transforms death into life. And God does the same thing. He does the same thing in, in the resurrection. But you might say, well, what, what kind of plant comes from a dead seed? Well, Paul continues in verse 37. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or, or of some other grain. In other words, there's a big difference, isn't there? There's a big difference between the seeds that we plant and the plant that grows up out of it, the plant that is made alive. I was struck by this a, a few summers ago when we, uh, as a family, we planted sunflowers in our backyard. And the seeds, you know what a sunflower seed looks like, right? You, it's pretty ordinary, not very big. But when the seeds died and, and became full-grown plants, we were, we were stunned, really, by their beauty. One of, them, one of them actually grew to be 10 feet tall. But what really surprised us is, is one of those sunflowers didn't just have one sunflower on it. Maybe I'm betraying some ignorance here, but I always thought a sunflower plant only grew one flower. But, but can you guess, maybe children, you can guess how many sunflowers grew up on that, or came out on that sunflower, all along the stem, and one big one at the top. How many do, would you guess? 23. 
23 sunflowers, heads, out of this one plant, out of one mere seed. What a difference. What a difference from the simple, bare, plain-looking seed that we planted. But how did that happen? God. God did it. That's what Paul says in verse 38. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him. The glory of that sunflower congregation was not our work. It was not the seed's work. It was not the work of the sun or the rain. Although the Lord used those things. It was certainly not Mother Nature's work. It was God's work. God transforms death into life. God transforms a simple seed into a glorious plant. And it's the same with our resurrection, resurrected bodies. They are a work of God. And that transformation, that transformation from a, from a, in the case of a seed, from a seed to a plant is in perfect agreement with God's sovereign good pleasure. He gives it, the text says, a body as it has pleased him. And to every seed, his own body. The transformation from a small dead seed to a glorious living plant is a sovereign work of God. A work that he willed and he designed that a body, he, he willed and designed that body for the seed that was planted when he made the world. A world that he called very good. From all eternity he had planned it this way. He had planned and designed a unique body for every kind of seed. There's a connection, you see. There's a connection between the seed and the plant. There's a continuity. Sunflower seeds become sunflowers. They don't become tomatoes. I'm sure the farmers here are thankful for that connection, that continuity between the seed and the plant. But all this pictures for us something about the believer's resurrected bodies. Our bodies now, dear believers, are like bare grain. So Paul is saying, they're like mere seeds. They are dying now. And one day, they will fully die unless Christ returns first. But when Christ returns, God will raise them up. And he will unite them again to our souls by his almighty power. They will be alive again. And they will be more glorious and more wonderful than the bodies we now have. But they'll still be our bodies. Can we understand all that, that, it, that, that will be? I, I can't, I don't understand it, but, but we know it from, from God's word. The glory of the believer's resurrected body is a sovereign work of God. But Paul doesn't just talk about seeds and plants, does he? In verse 39, Paul, Paul says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. What, what's Paul's point here, you're asking? Not all these verses are, are easy to understand, but if we think about what each of these four kinds of flesh look like, they all look quite different, don't they, from each other? Because God has created them to do different things. If I asked you, children, young people, what they each do, you, you would probably tell me, well, birds fly, fish swim, beasts or livestock walk on four legs, and humans walk on two legs. All these things are flesh, but the Creator has given them specific qualities suitable to their different purposes in their different environments. The point is that in the same way, in the resurrection, God will transform our flesh, dear believer, 
so that it is suitable for living in the new heavens and the new earth. But it, it will still be your flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh. There will be that difference. Then in verses 40 to 41, Paul points us to space. 40 to 41. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Paul makes clear in the next verse that the celestial bodies, the heavenly bodies he's thinking of, are the sun and the moon and the stars. The terrestrial bodies are the things that God has made on earth. And Paul's point here is to show us how God has made differences, not just you know, differences between, to, to make suitability, differences of suitability, but differences of glory between created bodies. Even among the heavenly bodies, God has made differences in glory. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Children, I'm sure you understand that. When, when you stand outside in a clear night, and you look at the stars, you might, you might, look, you might point out, look at that star, it's, it's bigger, it's brighter than all the rest. It's true, but, but that star is still a star, right? There's, there's differences in glory between the stars. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. There is, God will make your resurrected body to be better, believer, far better, far more glorious than the body you have now. But it will still be your body. So you want to know how the dead are raised. You want to know what the believer's body, resurrected body, will be like? Look at God's creation. It pictures the reality and the glory of the resurrected bodies of believers. The same God who made all of creation, all those things, will also raise the believer's body in glory. So let God's creation then, let God's creation around you remind you of that glory of the believer's resurrected body. Also when you maybe, maybe remember and you grieve your loved ones who have died in Christ. Or perhaps when you face sickness and the possibility of death, the end of life on this earth yourself. Why not use even the coming, the, the spring and the summer season to look at the fields, to, to go out to your garden, maybe plant some sunflowers and watch as God makes dead seeds alive. Watch Him transforming mere seeds into glorious plants and worship, worship Him. What a mighty and a gracious God He is for undeserving sinners like you and me that He would raise our dead bodies from the grave and glorify them. Whole congregation, he is a God. This is a God who is worth knowing. This is a God who is worth trusting and believing. This is a God who, to who, whom it's worth belonging to with body and soul. Such a wonderful comfort to belong to him, knowing that my body will be glorified, resurrected in glory one day. Let's notice now in our second point, the glory of the believer's resurrected body contrasted to our present experience. That's what Paul does in verses 42, verse, verses 44. He uses the picture of seeds. So he, he takes a, the one example he, he mentioned, the picture of seeds being sown and raised to new life to show us how much better our resurrected bodies will be. And Paul begins this contrast in the middle of verse 42. The body, he says, is sown in corruption. It is raised 
in incorruption. And the word corruption is the idea, has the idea of decay, uh, like something decomposing. You see decay all around us, really. We, we see it in our compost, if you, if you have compost. You see it when you drive by the, the dead animals on the, on the side of the road. We prefer not to look at them, don't we? And, but the reality is, and I don't intend to be morbid here, but the reality is that what happens to them happens to us when we die. Bodily corruption. It begins even during our lifetime, doesn't it? Our bodies wear out. Our skin and our bones and our organs, they break down. But in the resurrection, your body, dear believer, will be raised in incorruption. That means not just that it won't decay, it means that it won't be able to decay. There will be no more death. There will be no more fading away into dust. Your body will never break down. It will never wear out. We will have our bodies forever. And Paul draws a second contrast in verse 43. He says, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. You know, all of us, I think, want to look dignified, respectable, respectable to, to some extent. We spend how much time in front of the mirror every morning? Maybe some more than others, but we all try to look somewhat respectable, presentable, honorable, before we go out for the day. But, but really, it's a, if we're honest, it's a bit of a losing battle, isn't it? As we get older and, and as we face death, maybe, maybe some of you have, have lost some of your dignity or, or at least a sense of your dignity because of an un- unexpected health crisis. For all of us, one day when we die, all that honor that we worked so hard to maintain, all that time we spend in front of the mirror, be gone. Death robs us of all our dignity. But one day, Paul says, the bodies of all God's people who have died, however they have died, however they were buried, however much or little they were honored at their funeral, will be raised, those bodies will be raised in glory. They will be raised in honor. They will be raised in radiance. They will wake up with a beauty, a glory that outshines anything they had before death, a glory freely given to them by God, by grace alone. But that's not all. Paul Paul goes on. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You, you know what weakness is like, don't you? So often we, don't, we can't do what we want to do. We become tired. Every night we need rest. Maybe, maybe we struggle with disabilities. Maybe, maybe we are called to care for others with disabilities. And it's exhausting at times. The older we get, the more medicine we seem to need. Sickness lays us low time and time again. We slowly get weaker and weaker and weaker until we finally succumb to death. The body is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Think of that, congregation. Think of that. One day, there will be no more fear of sickness of viruses. There will be no more disabilities and there will be no more degenerative diseases. There will be no more tiredness 
and there will be no more need of any scans to monitor for dangerous growths. Our resurrected bodies will be strong and they'll be healthy. We will have even abilities that we cannot even fathom, we cannot even imagine here. But you know what I think the most, the greatest ability will be in our bodies that we will have? The greatest ability, what do you think it would be? I think it'll be this. We'll be able to see the dazzling glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and live. How can this be? Well, Paul tells us in the last contrast in verse 44, it's really the the climax. And I hope to show that to you in a moment. He says, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, that doesn't mean our resurrected bodies won't be physical. It means they will be filled with and completely governed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. Paul says earlier in this letter, our our bodies are are temples of the Holy Spirit. They're temples of the Holy Spirit already now in in this life. But too often we we grieve Him, don't we? We grieve Him by by our sins in the body. But then in the resurrection, when, when our bodies are raised, He will live in us, the Spirit will live in us completely and fully. Then not only our soul but also our bodies will be perfectly holy because the Spirit of God is perfectly holy. We will never sin. We will never be able to sin. And just in case you find it all hard to believe, Paul adds, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. In other words, our bodies are real. We we know they're real here and now. And so the spiritual body is just as real. What a body to have. What a glorious work of God. Isn't that a comfort, especially, especially to you who have lost loved ones in the Lord? And perhaps also to you who are called to suffer much in the body. Your suffering as real and as painful as it is cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed. The glorious contrast of the resurrected body to our present experience is a great comfort. But it is also a sober warning. You know, there are books and and teachings in the wider church today, professing church, that in effect deny the resurrection. They teach you that you can have your best life right here, right now. But you know, we don't need to read those kind of books to be tempted to think that way ourselves. It's so easy to think that this life is our best life. This life is all we've got. But it's not. God is teaching us in our passage that our best life is not now the best life for believers. Our best life is coming. It's coming with our 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 glorious resurrected body. That doesn't mean we have to love suffering. That doesn't mean we we can't use legitimate means to, to reduce our suffering. But it does help us, doesn't it? It does help us if God does call us to suffer in our bodies. And if he does choose not to take it away, it does help us to submit to his will for us by grace. There's a better life coming. There's a better life coming. 
It's a warning on the one hand not to expect our best life now, but, but it's a warning in another way too because I think and maybe this is more of a danger in our, our, our reformed, reformed circles. I don't know. But we can sometimes overemphasize the spiritual side of our salvation so much that we neglect the salvation of the body. No, it's true. Don't get me wrong. It's true. Salvation begins in the soul. That's the heart of it. The Bible speaks of a spiritual resurrection in reference to the soul's salvation. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel, the gospel is a gospel of full salvation. Comfort. Read Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that both in body and soul, body and soul, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of full salvation, a salvation that even, you could say, climaxes in a bodily resurrection. When we understand this congregation, we will seek to glorify God already in this life with our bodies. Why? Because we understand that our bodies are not meant for ourselves. But as Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 6, they're for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The anticipation, the, the eager expectation of our resurrected bodies should motivate us to use our bodies in the service of God and for His glory already here, already now. And that means, that means among other things, we could mention many things, but it means among other things being careful how and, and what and how much we eat. It means watching how much we drink. And it means, as Paul emphasizes in this this letter, fleeing sexual immorality. Dear congregation, the believer's resurrected body is a glorious work of God. But where does this, where does it all come from? Where does the glorious body, the spirit-filled body come from? How how can you know that that this description here in in our passage of this body that's raised in incorruption, in incorruption and in power and in, and in, 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 in glory and as a spiritual body, how can you know that that'll be your body one day? Well, this brings us to our third point. The glory of the believer's resurrected body is assured through union with Christ. Paul says in verse 45, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Paul's quoting here parts of, a part of Genesis 2, verse 7, which, which describes God's creation of man. Paul's saying our natural bodies, the bodies we have right now, they come by way of Adam's creation. We're all descendants of Adam. All of us have received our earthly life, our, our natural bodies, through our, our covenantal union with Adam. But, but that's as far as it goes. He's saying your spiritual body does not, it cannot come from Adam. Why not? Why not? Because he sinned. But what the first Adam failed to give, the last Adam gives. He is the source of the believer's resurrected body. Paul says, the last Adam was made a quickening, a life-giving spirit. Who is the last Adam? Who is the last Adam? It's our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. It is by Christ, it is in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, that the believer's body is resurrected and glorified. 
You see, when he himself rose from the dead, he secured a glorious bodily resurrection for all who are his. The believer's resurrected body is a glorious work of God in Christ. In Christ. That is your assurance. That is your assurance, dear believer. When you are united to Christ by faith, your body along with your soul becomes a member of Christ. And no body that is a member of Christ can fail to be raised from the dead in glory when Christ returns. Christ is the source of the believer's resurrected body. But we still wait for that body. And Paul emphasizes this. Some of these verses are maybe a little bit harder for us to understand. But that's really what he's emphasizing when he says in verse 46. How be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The point is, Adam came first, and then Christ. And in the same way, first we have our natural bodies, and only afterward, at Christ's coming, will we receive our spiritual, our resurrected bodies. Because Christ alone must have the honor at his return of transforming, as Paul says in Philippians, transforming our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Why must he have that honor? Look at verse 47. The first man speaking of Adam is of the earth, earthy. The second man, that's Jesus Christ, is the Lord from heaven. What a contrast. Children, if you've ever taken a dry clot of dirt and you, you, you squeezed it between your thumb and your finger, and it, what happens? It, it crumbles to dust, doesn't it? It crumbles to little pieces of, of dirt. That's what Paul is saying Adam's, Adam was like. His body was crumbly. It doesn't mean it wasn't very good. It means it wasn't yet glorified. It wasn't heavenly. It could crumble if Adam sinned. And he did sin. And the moment that happened, his body began to crumble. In Genesis 3, God says that because of his sin, Adam would return unto the ground out of which he was taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. But the second man, the second man is Christ, Paul says. The Lord from heaven. The one who has all authority. And he is able, he has the right, he has the right to transform our, 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 our bodies now into to glorious bodies when he comes again and raises them. Why? What, what did he do? This is the gospel. He came from heaven and he took on a crumbly and a dusty body like ours. And he even suffered a shameful death, the death of the cross in it. But then he rose from the dead. And by his resurrection, he glorified that body. He made it uncrumbly. He made it indestructible. Christ, in his death and resurrection, not only undid the curse, congregation, he outdid the creation. That's what Christ did. And he did it, not just for himself, but for his people, for all who look to him, all who are united to him by faith. He is the source of the believer's resurrected body. And therefore, he is also the pattern. He is also the pattern. Look at verse 48. As is the earthy, such are they also 
that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. When Adam sinned, when he, when he failed to obey God, he represented all of us. And the result is that our bodies are patterned after him in his fallen state. We are all born as sinners by nature. And therefore, as Paul says earlier in, in verse 22, in Adam all die. But praise God, there's another man. There's another man the heavenly man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who by grace are born again from above by the Spirit and who trust in him for their salvation are united to Christ as their representative. Their, their, their union with Adam is, 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 is cut, as it were, and they are joined to Christ and so, so that though their bodies may die, they will one day be raised again in his likeness to live with him in the new creation forever. But you see, the important thing then is, the important thing is, to be united to Christ by faith. You see, if you are not in Christ, if you do not belong to him, if you, do not have, if you have not put your faith in him, then you are still in Adam. And the Bible makes clear in other passages, not here, but in other passages, that if you remain in Adam, if you remain in your sins, you also will have a resurrected body. Only it won't be far better than the one you have now. It will be far worse. It will be a body made suitable for hell. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because Christ, in his word, also this evening, offers himself as the savior of sinners to all. In the gospel, he offers himself and he, and he is, as, as our text says, he is the life-giving, the quickening spirit, not just for physically dead saints, but also for spiritually dead sinners. Well then, believe in him. Be united to him through faith. Ask him to give you life, to be your life. He is the life. Ask him to take away your sins and to, and to give you his perfect righteousness that you too may one day be raised up in glory. And then you too will be like him. Yes, he will be preeminent, but, but we will even bear his image. Verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Isn't that a beautiful and a gracious promise? In this life, we always bear the image of fallen Adam. In our bodies, we are, we are, as Psalm 103 says, frail children of, du- of dust. And we are as feeble as we are frail. Eventually we die. But we have this promise. The believer has this promise. Just as we have borne this image of the earthy, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of Jesus Christ, of the heavenly man. And we shall be gloriously like Christ also in our bodies, for we shall see him as he is. The glory of our resurrected bodies is assured through union with Christ. But what a gracious Savior he is. What a gracious Savior he is for hell-deserving sinners. He's a Savior for body and for soul. Doesn't that motivate you to live your life trusting, abiding with Remaining with Christ, in Christ. 
Yes, doesn't it give reason, as Paul says in the last verse of this beautiful chapter, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection of believers is sure, and it will be glorious because of the resurrection of Christ. And one day we'll see it. One day all the illustrations, all the pictures from creation will fall away and we'll receive our resurrected bodies. We'll see the work of God. We'll see how God has so wonderfully transformed our broken and our battered bodies. And we'll see and recognize the glorious image of Christ in each other and in our loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ. But best of all, we'll see Christ himself as he is in the flesh the king of all glory oh then let us in anticipation of that day indeed ascribe all glory might and honor to God the God of our salvation amen let us pray Oh Lord, we confess that 